Father, this morning I pray yet again, as I do on so many Sundays, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, that God, you would do in us what you alone can do, and that is to build your church in us and through us, and we know the gates of hell will not overcome it. So God, do, do your transformational work by your power in us, by your spirit. And I pray that we would leave here today not like we were when we came here. We'd be more like Jesus. And God, if there's those who do not know you, I pray today they would come out of here rejoicing that they know you, the one true living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And they're able to live for your glory. I pray this in strong, the mighty name of our great rock and redeemer, Jesus the Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, for the first 500 years of the church, way back a long time ago in church history, you know, I love dead people and quote them often, but we'll go back to the first 500 years of the church only today. The Church of Jesus Christ worked hard to define the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In case you don't know this, and I hope you know this, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that, that God, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Why? Well, because God became a man came in the person of a man, did not cease to be God, yet was fully man. Of course, there have been many erroneous teachings that grew up around Christ, about, around the, uh, the person of Christ, around uh, the, what we call the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, which is just a, a fancy way of, of saying his, the union of his divine and human nature. So he's fully God and fully man. Divine nature and human nature, all in the same person. But in wrestling with this hard truth, or wrestling with this hard truth, let's say it the right way, right? That's the real thing as we know. In wrestling with this hard truth, some argue that Jesus did not have a human spirit. They said he, his divine spirit was united with the human body. And so he was not really a man. So that view and meaning like it preserved his deity, but they denied his humanity because it's really hard for us to see how God can also be a man, isn't it? And for honest, it's hard, it's difficult for us. And we love sound doctrine, we love God's word, and yet it's a mystery, isn't it? Docetism, one of those early church heresies, argued that he just seemed like a man. He was really God, but he just kind of seemed like a man. That's what docetic means, dokeo in the Greek. He seemed like a man, but was not. He was just God. In his human form, he was kind of a phantasm. Hmm. Of course, you've already heard, we've talked a lot about Arianism, the Arius, the, uh, the fourth century church her uh, heretic, early church heretic, who argued that there was a time when he was not. In other words, he was the first and the highest of all created beings. He was a, a creature merely filled with a heightened degree of God consciousness. And of course, that was condemned at the Council of Nicaea 325 A.D. And all these things and were condemned. And the orthodox view of the, church, of the, the, the view of, of Christ's incarnation was affirmed at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. So there you go, church history students. If you take my class, there's probably the answer to two, two questions, to uh, two, two quiz or uh, test answers right there. Chalcedon, 451, Nicaea, 325. There you go. That one's free. So we come to John 14, which was a critical text in deciding what do we do with this God-man, this teaching that God was incarnate in His Son. And so today we're going to spend our entire time, because it is worth it. Again, I don't know that I'm even going to do it justice in these next few minutes and, and unpacking this, just kind of skimming the surface. There's so much here. I wondered how in the world could I even possibly think about covering four or five verses this week. Well, I'm not going to try. So we got part one in Lord willing in two weeks. I'll be going next week in the great state of Georgia. But uh, we'll do part two. We'll get part two. And the rest of this text, I hope, could be a part three. You never know with me. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This literally means, and this is my first main point, that God pitched a tent among us. This is good news, isn't it? Now you've heard my take on camping. I'm not a big camper, right? David Taylor, where's David? He's going to throw something at me, right? David's a Boy Scout leader and all this stuff, so I'm not big on camping. But God pitched a tent among us. And I think it was to make this great statement that the gospel of John was written in the first place to show us that God 
became a man. And why did he become a man? We'll, we'll answer that here in just a moment. But these verses state the incarnation of Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So uh, we, we talk about that every year. We should talk about it every day. Jesus was born, of course, of the Virgin Mary in a stable in Bethlehem. But the second person of the Trinity didn't come into being at his birth. Okay? You see that? The second person of the Trinity didn't come into being. Because in the beginning, we learned back in verse 1, in the beginning was what? The Word. And remember we learned a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, excuse me, <clears throat> that he was in the beginning, he's always existed. There was never a time when he was not. Arius was wrong and he was rightly condemned for that. His errors for that heresy. Of course, that's a Jehovah's Witnesses. When they come to your door, they're modern day Arians. You can talk about that. I've tried. They don't listen. But I appreciate, but I appreciate those who try. Noah, you've been talking to some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, Praise God for that, brother. We're going to keep praying that you reach them. But this is a big sticking point. This, they're modern-day Aryans. And how did God become a man? Because at a certain time, the Word became flesh. Okay? So in the beginning was the Word, and yet the Word became flesh. Boy, this is hard to get our minds around, isn't it? So we've got to put our thinking caps on here in John's Gospel. And that's a good thing for us. So God the Son did not come into existence at the Incarnation. But He became, and here's a key word, He became... And all the early church confessions confess this. He became a man, a human being, in addition to a divine being. So as Christ's incarnation means this. The Son of God, you can write this down. The Son of God became a human in the fullest sense without losing any of his divinity. Okay, you see that? He became a man. He wasn't a man before his birth, his miraculous birth. But he became a man without losing any of his divinity. Okay, is your brain hurt yet? Well, we have to come to grips with this, right? This is what the early church was trying to do. And what does this mean? This seems to be, con uh, this seems to be contradictory. And of course, it is not. It's, a, it's something of a mystery, isn't it? Paul said in Colossians 2.9, In him, that is Christ, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And one of the clearest Affirmations of Christ Jesus' divinity in all the scripture, right? In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Of course, we know that Jesus was sinless. He was sinless without losing any of his humanity. Tempted as, in every way as we are, and yet without what? Sin. Tempted, tried, underwent adversity in every way as we are, and yet without sin. So he was fully human. He was in uncorrupted, true humanity. And as a man, and this is important, as a man, he is what we were created to be as a man. Not God, we're not little gods. We don't believe that. That's another modern day heresy. It's not new. He is what we were created to be before mankind fell in Adam. He is the ultimate man. So this is what you're being taken back to. You understand? This is what redemption means. Being taken back to being that perfect man. It will never happen in this life. It will happen in glory. And I hope you long for that this morning. Boy, I do. In all my weakness and all my sin and all my foolishness, all my idiocy. Ask my family. They're over here shaking their heads. They're not right. No, no, no. I want to be made perfect. And see, that's a misunderstanding that Christianity isn't. People say, well, you guys down at Christ Fellowship, you got a bunch of sinners down there. And I say that we do. That's exactly right. Redeemed sinners. So we'll never be per perfect in this life. And yet I hope you crave perfection. Now, we're perfectionists, right, in a certain sense. I like perfection. I'm a perfectionist about, you know, lots of things. Baseball and, you know, lots of other things that are silly. But we long for that, don't we? We long for the day when sin will be no more. These besetting sins that we all have, that we wrestle with, we look forward to the day that they will be no more. So take heart. They will be no more someday. Because we are made to be like Jesus, the second Adam, right? That's why he came to restore that to us. So why did God become a man? Well, that was part of it. But here's mainly why God became a man. He came to suffer death for us. You understand, God can't die. God did not die at the cross. Jesus, the man, died at the cross. You go, okay, my brain hurts a lot. Okay? We're going to look at this, not just today, but we're going, to, we're going to take several weeks to unpack some of this and all through John's Gospel. 
and get a clear understanding of who the Orthodox Christ, who he is. So he came to suffer death for us, and he had to be human to do that. Because Jesus possessed a human body, he had a human mind, he had a human heart, without sin, of course. He felt all that we feel. Jesus felt sorrow. Jesus felt joy. Jesus was born. He grew up as a boy. I heard a sermon one time preached, and this was an ill-advised sermon, if ever there was an ill-advised sermon, preached in chapel at our wonderful seminary, preached about the lost years of Jesus. How do we know about the lost years of Jesus? We don't. So you preacher boys, don't ever let me catch you preaching on the lost years, like the middle school years of Jesus. All right, don't do it. If one of your peers does that, you tell on him and we'll straighten him out, right? It was, it was a flight of fancy. I thought Dr. Muller was going to have a, have a stroke. We don't know, but he did grow up. He grew up as a boy, right? And it's left to our imagination, but he was a boy, right? He probably got mud on his boots like my son Jake does. You know, he tracks mud through the house all the time. His mother gets mad at him like every day, smelling like fish, all that, you know. Jesus probably did that. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But he had friends and neighbors. He paid taxes. We know that. And because he truly lived as we do, he set an example for us to follow. And, of course, it's not all moral example, right? But, but he set our example. He is who we are seeking to be made like Christ. We answer the question about sanctification, the catechism question. We're being made in the image of Christ. We're being transformed, taken back to him, right? That's what we're here for. If you're in Christ, that's what you're here for. That's what Christ fellowship is all about, transformation. Yes, information, but not just information, but transformation. That's why we're here, right? I hope it's why you're here. So Rick Phillips said there's three main reasons why the Word became flesh. To die, to sympathize, sympathize with us, and to show us how to live. That's it, really. To die, to sympathize with us. He's with you in your weakness. And then to show us how to live. To show us how to keep God's law because He kept it perfectly. C.S. Lewis said He goes down to come up again. And bring the whole ruined world up with him. Jesus went down so that we might come up. That's why he came. So glory in that, beloved. Take joy in that. In this fallen, stinking cosmos, this world that we just, this world, as Luther said, with devils filled, that threatened to undo us every day, every time we watch the news or look at our Twitter feeds. He came for you. God came down to bring you up. That's it. That's what the gospel is, Right? I don't mean bring you up in the papers as someone important in this world, but came to redeem you. I mean, it's almost impossible, isn't it, to wrap our minds around how a person can be both fully God and fully man at the same time. But, and this is vital, the Bible shows us that Jesus possesses two distinct natures, one divine, one human, without, okay, listen to this now, Without any mingling, and the early, the, the Chalcedonian Creed gets this right. I'm absolutely clear about this. Without any mingling or confusion between them. You say, I'm confused. <laughs> it's a mystery, but there's no mingling, no confusion between the two natures. They're two distinct natures. And we see it operating in Jesus' ministry. The, the human nature, right? He's the ultimate spirit-filled man. What does this say about God's desire that our salvation, that he would save us, that he would step out of heaven, surrender his glory, come into the real world and become one of us? What does that say about you? That says that you're precious. It says that every life matters. That man standing at the bottom of the ramp with a whole cardboard sign, his life has come down to that. That man matters. So that woman, she matters, Right? The baby in the womb that we fight so hard to keep alive in this country, this scandal, this, this holocaust of, of, of abortion, 70 million babies since 1973, it means they matter. It means their lives matter. They're human. Christ came to die for sinners like them and like us, right? That says something about us, that God was going to clothe himself in human flesh. And so we fight for the unborn because we know, we know how valuable every single person is. Every life matters. Every life. We don't divide ourselves up, do we, by race or creed or anything. It's every single life.
to paraphrase an old Stephen Curtis Chapman song, and this is sort of my title this morning, <laughs> why did heaven come to the real world? That's what matters, isn't it? That's really every Sunday while we're here, to discover from God's word why heaven came to the real world. And if you're lost, heaven came to the real world for you. Rick Phillips said, this shows the value and dignity of every human life, given the dignity that God gave to humans above all of the creatures. God made us in his image and sent his own son to become a man that we might become in him the sons and daughters of God. And that's who you are if you're in Christ. Son, daughter of the living God. And if that doesn't make you joyful, I can't, there's nothing else going to make you joyful, right? Even in the midst of all this squalor around us that discourages us, Christ God became man for us. And so using this phrase, he dwelt among us, literally can be translated, he tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. John is pointing us back to the Old Testament, back to the Exodus, back to the time of Moses when God dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, and you probably have pictures of this in your Bible, and if you have an ESV study Bible, I know there's all these pictures that you know, kids are tempted to turn to right now, but do that later or Google it later. But it was this portable tent about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide or so. It had three areas, three main areas. There's this outer courtyard. And this is where the priests washed themselves and sacrificed for their own sins. Why Jesus had become our high priest, he, he didn't have to sacrifice for his own sin, did he? Or wash. And then there's, they, they would enter in and there's the outer room was the holy place where the, the golden candlestick, the table, the showbread, the altar of incense was all there. And then there's the inner room, the most holy place, where only the high priest could go. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, where God himself dwelt. That was the tabernacle. And there were several parallels between the tabernacle. This is why John used this language intentionally between the tabernacle and Christ. And here's six of them. There's more, but here's just six. I'll tease out for you quickly this morning. And think about this. The tabernacle was what? It was the center of Israel's camp, right in the middle, right in the center. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the center of our camp, is he? We're here this morning for Jesus, aren't we? If I preach a sermon, Spurgeon said this, if a man preaches a sermon without mentioning Christ, then he should never preach again. We are Christians, right? We are followers of Christ. And so Christ is the center of the Christian encampment. He's our gathering place. John 8, 29, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He draws sinners. If you are in him, he drew you to himself with his cords of love. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He could have left you. He could have left me. And he drew you with his cords of love. He's the center of our camp. And this, this tabernacle was given for Israel's wilderness journey. They, uh, this world, that, the world, they were on their way to another world, right, to another land, and so were we. And so was Jesus. Jesus was a stranger and a pilgrim in this world, and we are aliens and strangers in this world. See, this teaches us how to put our Bibles together, doesn't it? How to understand Old Testament in light of New Testament. The way the New Testament authors invite us to understand the Old Testament. So the tabernacle was the center of God, Israel's camp. Secondly, the tabernacle was the place where the law of Moses, the law of God, was preserved. Now the tables of law, the Ten Commandments, were given to Moses at Mount Sinai and they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Again, this is the centerpiece of, 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 uh, of, of their worship. And the Holy of Holies for safekeeping. Now think about in Christ. In Christ, the law has been kept safely by him because he is the only man, the only human being. Again, part of the reason he became man, he came to keep the law perfectly. Down to circumcision, down to ceremonial, the, the civil ceremonial, the moral law. He kept it perfectly, right? He fulfilled two parts. So he fulfilled all three, all three uh, types of the law. But he kept the law of God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as expressed, summarized in the Ten Commandments. He kept those covenant stipulations perfectly as a man. And when you are saved, it is that righteousness, that law-keeping, that's deposited into your account. So that when you're justified by faith in Christ, it's as if you never sinned because it's his righteousness that pleads before the throne of God for you. Because you must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect if you would see heaven. And we've all probably broken God's law this morning, right? 
So the tabernacle was the place where the law of God was, Moses was preserved, the law of God, and, and so Jesus is the same. Thirdly, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. And that was symbolized atop the, ark, the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Between the wings of the cherubim, the angels, the holy of holies, and the Shekinah glory stood for God's presence. And the Shekinah glory was what we would call light. And the glory of within the Holy of Holies symbolized the presence of God, that he was with them. He never left them. He was always with them. They were always transporting the tabernacle, right? So he was with them. John realized that God had been revealed in the flesh of Jesus. And he writes here, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son, the only begotten son from the Father. So it was the dwelling place of God. Fourthly, the tabernacle was a place of revelation. It's where God revealed himself. He revealed truth. The truth about man, the truth about God. It's a place where God met with his people and he spoke to them. Can you imagine that? It's why the tabernacle in the Old Testament was, was often called the tent of meeting. Right? Jesus is the new tabernacle. He is the place where we might see and live. We understand the truth of God in him. God has spoken these last days in his son, right? He's spoken to us that way. He's revealed him to us just like the tabernacle. So he tabernacles among us, reveals God to us. We'll see this in the, in the next sermon in this series about we've never seen God. No one's ever seen God and lived. And yet he has exegeted him for us. He's explained him to us. We look at him, we see God, right? Fully God, fully man. Exodus 33, 20 says, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And yet God today has revealed perfectly to us in his Son. Hebrews 1, 3, looked at this months and months ago, probably a couple years ago. We still learned that Jesus was the exact representation of God. Fifthly, the tabernacle was a place of sacrifice for sins. This is where the atonement was made. And what is Christ? He is the sacrifice for sin, Right? For us, the once for all sacrifice for sin. The tabernacle showed there was no approach to God except by the means of the sacrifice, and that's what we see in Christ, isn't it? Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Today, there's no approach to God. How do you come to God? You come through the mediator, Jesus Christ. You come to God by faith in Him, right? You come to the Father through the Son, that's how we come to God. He is the perfect and final sacrifice. Jesus Christ, who tabernacled in his flesh, offered himself up on Calvary. James Boyce asked, said this, wrote this, but this is the supreme question of man in all the ages of human history. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, I invite you to ask this question. If you don't know that you know that you know that you're in him and you doubt it, or maybe you just say, I'm not a Christian. Here's the question you must answer. Every human being will stand before him and give an account someday, and they must answer this. Boyce asks this, how can sinful man be made right with the Holy God? This is what drove the Reformation, isn't it? This is what drove Luther almost out of his mind before he found peace in Christ. Boyce says, we all need God, but how can we find him? How can we come close enough to him to understand him? How can we become acceptable before him? How can we know forgiveness of sin? How can we know God's peace? How can we find fellowship with the one in whom we live and move and have our being? The answer is in the tabernacle and in Christ whom the tabernacle pointed to. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because of his sacrifice, we who were once children of wrath have now become God's children and can approach the Father. We can approach him safely and only through Christ. Sixthly, the tabernacle was a place where God's people worshipped. Christ is where we come to worship now, right? He told the woman at the well in John 4. You don't know what you're, what you're talking about. There's a new place to worship. It's me. You worship in me. We're in him, and we can only worship God properly this morning in him. And we come together this morning as Christians, as Christ's people, to come into his presence here together as God's gathered body, as his people who've been redeemed. So God came from heaven to earth to pitch his sin among us. Secondly, God came to show, Jesus shows us God's true glory. The tabernacle, again, was called the tent of meeting. It was a place where God met with his people, saw the Shekinah glory cloud that shined from within. 
John applies that to Christ's coming. He's the radiance of God's glory, the writer of Hebrews says. And John says, we've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. What does he mean? I thought you couldn't see God and live. I thought that's what Exodus, what Moses said. We've seen his glory. Well, some people think he's referring to the transfiguration. And others say, well, he's pointing to the miracles of, of Jesus he performed. And those things certainly did point to his glory, like a big finger. But Jesus showed the glory of God not only through his divine nature, but also in his human nature, through his humble, obedient servant life. In our world today, a glorious person is one who rises above the crowds, right? They pull themselves up by the bootstraps and they accomplish success, great things. They become great names. Maybe it's in athletics. Think about LeBron James or, or Tom Brady or Shohei Otani. What a marvel he is in baseball. You think of entertainers and movie stars. Think of Alan Jackson. Jake would appreciate that. He's not here today. Dolly Parton or Tom Hanks or Jennifer Aniston. Man, you think of those names. Those are big, heavy hitters, right? Those are big people in the world's eyes. You might even in ministry, you might say, well, man, Billy Graham, he was famous. There have been stacks of books, stacks and stacks and stacks of books written about Billy Graham. They say, what about John Piper? Well, he's famous among us, right? We all know him. That's what the Lord, that's what the world says. But Jesus showed us what I believe was a higher glory. And part of the reason he came to show us what true glory and true great, true greatness is, a higher glory that gives us a pattern for how we may, we may live for his glory, and that is a in selflessness. That's true glory. Not that there's anything wrong with those people I named, but selflessness. Some of those people might agree with that. I hope they would. I'm sure not all of them would. Selflessness. I mean, he allowed his heart to break, his body to be broken, laying down his life so that we might live. I mean, at first glance, this isn't very glorious, is it? Wait a minute. You're telling me he achieved glory by dying, by volunteering for death? That's not glory. That's, that's inglorious. That's not glory. I mean, Jesus doesn't look all that impressive on the surface, does he? I'm sure if we saw him, if we saw him in his day, we wouldn't have been impressed with just his appearance, right? There wouldn't have been the halo around his head that we have in all the, you know, the pictures we have at home. You know, that, that wasn't there, I don't think. No. It's kind of like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, this ranger. He's not very impressive, is he? He's kind of, kind of a scraggly-looking guy, kind of a scruffy guy, you know. And the people kind of shunned him. He was a little weird, you know, kind of odd. He dressed kind of funny. And he was kind of funny, you know. And yet, who was he? Well, he was the king of, of all the lands, right? In Middle Earth, he was the king of kings. Of course, I think Tolkien meant that to point to something greater, far beyond itself. I love what Tolkien wrote. And I really set that up just to use this quote. All... That is, gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. And that's right. I've taught, been trying to teach my kids this their whole lives. All that glitters is not gold. It's not. No, no, not in, not in God's eyes. And all those who wander are not lost. I mean, the same could be said of Jesus, right? I just said about Aragorn. He may have seemed to wander in this kind of peripatetic ministry, but no one on the earth ever lived with a greater purpose. I mean, no, Jesus did not glitter as gold, but he bore the glory of humble obedience all the way to Calvary for us. For us. He laid down his glory for us. Because real glory is not like worldly glory. God shows us through his Son that glory is not about pageantry, it's not about show. No, real glory is found in humble service out of devotion to God. That is real glory. And I hope you're seeking real glory, brother and sister. Christ fellowship, that's what we should be about. Laying down our lives for others. That's true glory. Leon Morris said, Jesus did not haunt the palaces of kings and governors. He was not found in the high places of the earth. All his life, he was among God's little people. And by that, that doesn't mean short guys like me. <laughs> right? It's the little people. It's the people who are of no reputation, who the world will never, ever, ever know. 
I think of people like my father. My father was a godly man, and no one will ever know him. He was a builder. In fact, I was home a couple of summers ago. A guy said, now, you're, what was your dad's name again? Everybody knew him back when he was alive, and they, they're forgetting him. But man, was he humble. And man, was he, was he servant-hearted. Little people. Little people. All his life, he was among God's little people. Those who, in one way or another, felt their need. God's little people. That's us. Seminary student, that's probably you. You think, I'm going to be the next John Piper. Probably not. If that's your ambition, hey, let's talk after church, all right? I know my seminary center, that's none of your ambition. I think you know this. I mean, think about the God, those who are in God's Hall of Fame. They're not, they're not people who the world sees as great. Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. I preached on that, you know, a couple of years ago. The Hall of God's Hall of Fame. God's Cooperstown. I mean, the people named in there were nobodies in the world, but great in the eyes of God. Think about Abraham. Moses, now there are heroes, but not the world's heroes, right? Gideon, Samuel, yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're forgotten in the world, right? But they're great in heaven. I mean, Mark 10, 43 and 44, Jesus said if we, that if we would be great, he said, whoever, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. See, that's true greatness. I mean, this has serious, serious implications for the church of Jesus Christ today. It has serious implications for us. Because for the Christian, the way up is down, right? The way to be great is to empty yourself. That's why Christ came. Jesus came and became a man. That's why we pursue humility and, and selflessness. I had a young person ask me, Recently, he said, I'm just not happy. I'm very, very unhappy. I'm miserable in life. This individual claimed to be a Christian, and I said, you know, are you serving anybody? He said, no. I said, go serve somebody. It'll make you happy. He said, really? <laughs> that was my advice. That's your advice? You got all this learning, that's the best you can do? Yeah. Go serve somebody. You're going to feel better. You're going to be happy. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see, but I think he'll be happy if he goes and serves somebody, right? I mean, those are, uh, that, that, that's what makes the true Christian happy, isn't it? Serving others because we're, more, we're being like Christ. Because whoever be great among you must be your servant, Jesus said. So Jesus came to show us true glory. Finally, thirdly, Jesus came to reveal grace and truth. These are two glorious things Jesus came to reveal. First of all, grace. Oh, we love grace. We love the doctrines of grace, don't we? We love the grace that uh, was communicated to us through the Reformation. We love Paul's teaching. But this is really the story of Scripture, isn't it? This is what it's all about. Creation, fall, and then grace. The rest of the Bible, even all that stuff that looks like a shipwreck among God's old covenant people in particular, it's still grace. He didn't vaporize them. It's grace. What is grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor towards humanity. As one commentator put it, grace is God's favor shown to those who deserve the very opposite. It's not that we don't just deserve nothing. We deserve the opposite because of our sinfulness. And so grace is the very opposite of merit. If we merit something, we get what we deserve, right? You work nine hours for nine hours pay, you get nine hours pay, right? That's meritocracy. No, 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 no. This is the opposite of marriage. It's not based on our works, is it? But on the basis of the Son's perfect life, the Son of God's perfect life, His substitutionary death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. I mean, there's one sense in which every person who's ever lived is a recipient of God's grace. What theologians call God's common grace. And this is undertone, I think, in churches. I, I think this would have helped if I'd been taught this maybe growing up. Instead of don't go to the movies and don't listen to the music, you know? Seeing those people made the image of God and maybe some of the things they do as being good in God's gift kind of helped, you know? A little nuance, right? Common grace. When scripture says God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. It's not like, you know, Farmer Jim becomes a Christian and God grows his crops and there's plenty of corn, there's plenty of wheat. Man, that soil's dark over there. There's Farmer Bob and he hates God and he's just, his plants are, it's all shriveled up and he's just about to start a death over there. No, no, no. 
He sends the rain on Farmer Jim and Farmer Bob, right? The just and the unjust. He gives them more than they deserve. Not what they deserve. If we got what we deserve, what we merited, all of humanity would be in hell right now, this morning. The just and the unjust. When the human race sinned in Adam, our entire, or our entire race fell under judgment. We did not deserve anything. God did not owe us anything. He does not owe us anything but his wrath. God would have been perfectly just to cast Adam and Eve into hell forever and ever and ever. And so it is with you and so it is with me. And the sooner we realize that and embrace that, the sooner we will start to begin to understand the need for humility, right? And why the doctrines of grace are so glorious. We could do nothing to get it, right? You did nothing to get it. You did nothing to keep it. Even those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they receive common grace? I mean, think about it. Many unbelievers have a nice home. They have plenty to eat, successful careers, college degrees, talent for singing or practicing medicine or science, and many of them are wealthy. All because of God's common grace. Every single person who's ever lived or received a measure of God's grace. God is upholding them. God is giving them that. And we, we rejoice in that, but it's far less glorious than special grace, which you have received if you're in Christ, Right? That's great grace. But the saving grace we have in Jesus Christ is far greater. It's even greater than all our sin, as the hymn writer puts it. That's grace. I mean, we love the doctrines of grace. We should be the happiest people in the world. And yet, I find Reformed Christians being the most morose people I've ever been around in my life. Why are you morose? God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He's making like his son. Why could you not be happy? I don't mean giddy. I don't mean silly. I don't mean the smiley face, the emoji happy. I mean really happy in the sense that you are settled and you're not freaking out every time things go wrong. You're trusting God. God met the deepest need of our hearts, rescued us from the wrath and gave us eternal life. Rescued us from his wrath and gave us eternal life. God takes what scripture calls children of wrath and adopts them into his family. Grace. He came to reveal grace. He also came to reveal truth. Truth is an important word in John's gospel. It appears about 24 times. God loves truth. Truth. Because he is truth. Many references in John to truth refer to the character of God, the spotless character of God. And so we are to be tellers of the truth, lovers of the truth as his people. We're called to live daily in obedience to God's truth. The psalmist says God desires truth where? In our inward parts. It's his desire for you. Truth would take root and grow in your inward parts so that you love truth. Truth telling, truth living. I mean, Proverbs 6, 17 lists six things God hates very soberingly. And one of them is a lying tongue. God hates lies. He hates falsehood. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love rejoices with the truth. The truth. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. He even calls God the Father truth. So we must be a people of the truth. But we live in a society that rejects even the possibility of the definite article, truth. A truth? Many truths? Sure. The truth? No. Not on your life. Not today. We live in a very relativistic culture. Truth is relative. There's as many truths as there are people. No basis for the truth, the pundits say. Just listen to them. Conventional wisdom today says truth is relative. Each person has his or her own truth. And of course, that doesn't work when we go to the bank, does it? Off well, the teller said, that money in your account, that's my money. All of a sudden, we become truth tellers and truth lovers, right? No, no, my name's on the account. Well, that's my name too, right? I want a bank that tells the truth about how much money I've got in my account and where they're going to take care of my money, right? Or you get on a plane. I've had flown a lot in my adult life. I want to know if that man is a pilot, and he's studied to be a pilot, and he's flown. I wonder what the state of Kentucky says about his status as a pilot, right? I want some truth. No, I feel good about piloting today. I think I'm a pilot today. I don't want that guy. He can stay home. If that's what he wants to do, we'll lock him up. Facing major surgery, we want truth about that, don't we? Go to the doctor. I want the truth, doc. I don't know. I feel good about you. I feel like you're, you're great. they got stage four cancer. We don't want that, do we? We're very inconsistent, but we, our culture says, no, there is no truth. 
I mean, polls show that most of the people in our world today said there is no system of ideas we can agree upon as being true in a way that's binding for all people for all time. My truth is not necessarily truth. truth. So I'm saying, I've heard that when I've done evangelism. You probably have to. Well, your truth and my truth are very different. Let's go to the bank. <laughs> Let's see how, how relative you are. Or what's true today may not be true tomorrow. It's always changing according to the culture, the shifting sand of the culture. Or I'm glad you're, that truth what works for you makes you feel better, but it doesn't work for me. I hear that a lot. Man, if that Christianity thing that works for you, fantastic. Makes you feel good? Because we all want to feel good, right? That's one of the greatest virtues in our society today, feeling good. But you know, it doesn't, doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't work for me. So that's great. That's what our world tells us. I have my own truth, they'll say. I mean, in our country, there are political leaders who want government to be the arbiter of truth, don't they? They want to tell you, hey, this man wants to be a woman. He's a woman. Even the pronouns, that doesn't, that's, a, that's a two plus two equals 22, right? That doesn't add up. I mean, we saw this this past week in the SCOTUS confirmation hearings of uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Asked to define a woman, she was absolutely at a loss for words. I can't do that. It's relativism. Relativism. Identity politics, it's all that thing. We must reject it out of hand. There's no Christian, no Christianity in that answer. None at all. No, no, no. I mean, evidently, there's no objective definition of a female for her, and predictably, the media scorned conservative leaders for not being satisfied with that answer. One of my good friends was called a really vile name for not accepting her answer. You just feel like you live in a, a world that it just doesn't make any sense. Sometimes it's like living a perpetual Saturday Night Live episode, right? Like somebody's going somebody's gonna to wake up and say, live from New York, it's Saturday night. I'm going, oh boy, I knew, I knew, I feel so much better now. All right, I knew you were joking. But this is how the people around you think, and you have to be able to engage that, not just dismiss them like I, I, I'm not being dismissive, but this is how we think. We're living in an age of expressive individualism. By the way, I recommend highly Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I want to put it back there on our, my recommendation shelf next, uh, sometime this week so you can see it. It's a must-read. It explains all this, and it's, it is eye-opening. There are many versions of the truth of our people. I mean, the highest good is what? It's individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, self-expression. That's what the world tells you. There's no objective truth. And on the face of it, that's absurd, isn't it? It should be. They say, my reality is true for me. So the arbiter of truth today, above all other arbiters of truth, is the individual. It's, it's me. I determine what's true for me. There's no single worldview that explains everything. It's the ultimate exercise in self-idolatry, and that's where we've arrived today. We are, in this society, self-idolaters. We worship ourselves. And we demand that you bow down to us or you will pay by being canceled or something else. That's what that's all about. You understand that, right? And of course, as Christians, we can traffic in the same thing too, right? We can, do the, we can overreact and be really nasty to those people, I think, sometimes. And just to where they don't want to hear anything from Christians because we're just so nasty with our truth. There can be no such nonsense as this for the Christian. Jesus did not leave us with that option. He said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's it. That is the bottom line. If you're here today and say, well, there's got to be more than one way to God. No, there is not. God came to earth and tabernacled among us in his, the person of his son. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He made those claims. So, as C.S. Lewis famously said, he's either a liar, lunatic, or he's the Lord. And Paul told the Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. The Bible claims to be the revelation of ultimate truth, the very word of God. That's our claim as Christians. We must not move off that. It is the very word, the oracles of God, his sacred word. That's what this book is. We're not bibliologists. We worship God because he reveals himself to us in this truth. That's what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. I mean, the truth about God and man without any mixture of error. It's right there found in Scripture. So when we present the claims of Jesus Christ and the claims of our Christian faith, we are dealing with real truth, with true truth. We're declaring what Jesus is declaring. 
that these things are true for all people for all time. This is the eternal word of the living God. There are no other options. And we must not accept any substitutes. And lovingly, patiently, graciously com- proclaim the gospel to those around us who think, who, who are so mixed up and so confused about truth. As difficult as it is to have a conversation with them over pronouns and all the other nonsense. And it is nonsense. We are declaring because Jesus is declaring that the things are true for all people for all time. These things. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It tells us about man. Here's the truth about man. God made us male and female in his image. There are only two genders. There are not three or four or however many you can conjure up. That is absolute nonsense. And you can quote me. You can put it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever you want. It is nonsense. We must not accept it. The church is complicit. We accept this. Again, lovingly we reject it, but we reject it. God did not create a freak show. God is not an amateur. God does not make mistakes. None at all. I mean, he is either the God we worship or he's not God at all. And we have to understand this and we must not back down from this. That's the truth about man. Man has a problem. Yes, he has a problem. And we see it in the gender confusion and all the other stuff. He's broken. He's wicked. He's a sinner. He's a rebel. He's full of pride and self-love and any number of similar words that points to our brokenness and our depravity. It's why God became man and came to us to rescue us from ourselves. The famous quote, we have met the enemy and he is us. And we all know this intuitively. There's something wrong with us, don't we? But Jesus came to set us free from that. That's the only way. We're sinners in need of God's grace. And he has come to reveal grace to us, to bring grace to us and truth to us as to how we might access that grace. The Bible tells us the truth about God. He's a sovereign creator of all that exists. He is holy and just and perfect. He is gracious and loving. He rules meticulously and continuously over all things, over every molecule and every atom and every subatomic particle. He is Lord. And he loves sinful man enough to send his son to die for their sins. It tells us about the atonement. 1 Peter 2.24, read it this morning, love this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Healed by his righteousness. That's the atonement. It came, this truth came to the world. This good news came to the world through Jesus Christ. It's recorded for us in sacred scripture. Our eternal destiny will depend on the way we respond and upon whether we will commit our lives to Jesus Christ as Savior and submit to him as Lord. Will you this morning? As we close out, will you submit to him? Will you receive Christ this morning as your your Savior? Will you submit to him as Lord? That is how one becomes a Christian. Nor are you seeking to live by the pattern Jesus said. Are you laying down your life in humility for others, for God's glory? Are you drawn to serving among God's people, among his little people? Or do you crave the world's limelight? Do you crave its notoriety? In other words, what are you living for? It's either God's glory or your glory. That's really what we're left with. The cross is the ultimate display of God's glory. And it's why God became man and how far God was willing to humble himself. James and John asked if they could sit at the right hand, the left hand is glory. Jesus famously said, Mark 142, I'm sorry, Mark 10. I'll read this as we close. He said this. Mark 10, 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, they're abusive leaders. 
And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. That's us. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. That's why he came. There's a lot of hopelessness in our world right now. Sometimes I feel it. And I know you feel it. You've talked to me about it. We just feel beleaguered by all the, all the things going on around us. It's a terrible sense of hopelessness that pervades our culture. We've got war going on in Ukraine. We see it every day on television and social media, and it's ugly. Recession here in our country. Political division on a scale that our, our country's never known. Lots of reasons to be hopeless. But where's your hope? Where's your hope? There's hope. There's hope in this gospel. Romans 8, Paul calls it groaning. You feel the creation. You can sense it groaning, can't you? The creator order is groaning. It's groaning. It's groaning. But there's hope. You feel the groaning, but there's hope that the groaning won't be forever. And you don't have to groan because you have hope in him. A certain, sure, settled hope. If you don't know him, flee to him today. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, do not leave this building today until you know that you have eternal life. Here's the good news. Not only the creation's groaning, Paul said, but we ourselves are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, don't we? We don't like this. It's, uh, we, we're tempted to be hopeless too. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. But he says this, for in this hope we were saved. Run to him, beloved. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ and find a sure and settled hope. If you're in him, live that glorious life that is utterly, utterly selfless, empowered by his grace, grace to live out his truth. Let's pray. Father, I've done my best to unpack these incredible truths, and I know I've not done them justice. So forgive me for that. Lord, I pray that everyone here today would know this hope that we, that we have in Christ. We'll know this truth. Because Jesus also said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Though those here who don't know you, Lord, I pray today they would come to know the freedom from the world's confusion, from sin, from death. It's found in Christ alone. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.